0: Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. You're home for edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me. We talk about faith and politics and all kinds of topics that really matter in our culture. So if you're tired of all the screamers out there, taking all the oxygen out of the room, and you wanna join us and taking some of that space back, you'll love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host and so grateful to have a place to talk about faith, and politics and big ideas in our culture with all kinds of interesting, accomplished folks of goodwill and good faith. Please consider supporting us. You can find us at politicsandreligion.us. And we always appreciate it when you subscribe, rate, and review TPNR on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, and every major podcast app. And without further ado, allow me to introduce you to today's esteemed guest. Christine Todd Whitman is the co-founder and co-chair of the States United Democracy Center, which was originally founded during the 2020 election as the Voter Protection Program. And she is the president of the Whitman Strategy Group. Governor Whitman served in the cabinet of President George W. Bush as administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency, and was the 50th governor of the greatest state in the union, the state of New Jersey, (laughs) uh, serving as its first woman governor. Governor Whitman also serves a number of nonprofit organizations, including as chairman of the American Security Project and vice chairman of the trustees of the Eisenhower Fellowships. Among quite a few other nonprofits and causes, she was the co-chair of the Commission on the Rule of Law and Democracy at the Brennan Center at NYU. Also during the 2020 election cycle, she served as chair of Republicans and independents for Biden. And on top of all that, she's the author of a book I've really been enjoying, a New York Times bestseller called it's my party too. Taking back the Republican Party and bringing the country together again. But of all your accomplishments, Governor Whitman, our listeners are most eager to know what is it like to be a World Wrestling Federation champion.
1: <laughs> well, fortunately, I didn't have to wrestle. I had to stand there with the Undertaker, who never said a word the entire time. And the tragedy is, he gave me—they gave me a, a pink, you know, World Wrestling uh, Federation belt. And I can't find it. I think it's in, I think it's down in Trenton in the museum. I hope that's where it is.
0: Well, in all seriousness, that honor was bestowed on you as a result of lowering taxes and making it easier for businesses to flourish in New Jersey. Isn't that right?
1: Well, it was actually because of a specific bill that recognized that the World Wrestling Federation was not wrestling in the terms that we know it or the Olympics. It was it was entertainment. And by changing it from sports to entertainment, that gave them a different tax uh, setup, and so it was better for them from a tax perspective. And it was recognizing what they really are. It's not. There's a lot of acting that goes into that. The wrestling.
0: Yeah, yeah. Just the the, the idea that you're thinking creatively about individual businesses that could flourish in the state, and really thinking creatively that way up and down uh, the state and up and down the budgets. To make it friendly for business and uh, lower taxes, that that was um, an illustrious record, and we'll certainly talk a little bit about that. But I, I'd love to start by sharing a sense of your family's background. So, can you tell us something very special that happened at the Republican National Convention of nineteen thirty-two?
1: Yes, my parents were introduced to one another, a set-up job for my grandparents because both of my grandfathers were very involved in fundraising for the Republican Party at that time. And so uh, somehow they managed to put the two of them together. <laughs> that's Which- right.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's right. It, it's it, it just fascinated me to learn about your family's background. Uh, you said, I shared my father's fiscal conservatism, but leavened it with the social concerns my mother held. Now, I, if I remember correctly, weren't there some discussions about your mother possibly running for higher office in New Jersey?
1: Oh, yes, there was. There's talk about her running for the Senate. She never really wanted to do that. She kind of felt it was <clears throat> dad was Republican state chairman for 10 years. She'd been Republican National Committee woman for the 10 years before. And she just resigned because she thought state shouldn't be run by two Todd's. So the Republican Party in the state, I mean, and um, <clears throat> I don't know. It was just never something that she decided she wanted to do.
0: Well, she'd certainly be proud of you. But there was also a an interesting note about your dad, that I found to be an interesting precursor to how you spent a lot of your career, both in office and subsequent to that. It speaks, yeah, it speaks to your your sense of having real friends across the aisle. Wasn't your father friends with Adlai Stevenson?
1: Yes, he was, and uh, I have the letter somewhere that he, I do have it <laughs> that he wrote Adlai Stevenson during the second Eisenhower campaign in uh, '56, I guess, uh, where he said to him, look, you're going to get blown away. (laughs) Don't do this. I love you too much for you to do this. But at least I will know that whomever wins, the country will be in good hands. And that was not the kind of thing you hear today. (laughs) And of course, Stevenson wrote back and said, people said, her dad, I think, said he was crazy. And he said, people, you know how crazy people say I am. But a good relationship. But it was that kind of respect, the ability to respect someone from the other party who was honest and focused. And you didn't think they'd make as good a leader, but you knew they weren't going to do go out and try to do damage.
0: Yeah, I love I love how you talk about how influential your parents were in your own life. In fact, you told uh, stories about attending national conventions at the ripe old age of almost 10, as you put it. (laughs) But I, I was also curious, at what point did you seriously consider getting into politics yourself?
1: Well, I'm the youngest of four by eight years. And so I was kind of the tag along to everything my parents were doing politically. So I saw a lot of it in the backroom stuff. I was able to stay up late to count paper ballots with my mother up in the up in the firehouse in our little town. But I was also there at the dining room table when they would talk about what was happening in the party, in the country, in the world, in the state. And so I grew up knowing I wanted to be involved in policy. That's really what I was focused on. So I majored in international government because uh, at Wheaton College in Massachusetts, because I figured I'd gotten such a good, you know, on the ground training in domestic politics that they weren't going to be able to teach me much. Of course, that's the arrogance of an 18 year old, I guess. Um, but I, where my hole was, was in international government. So that's what I majored in. And I didn't know what I was going to do. I was thinking maybe I'd go to the State Department, something like that after I graduated and things just happened to fall in line that I was able to that I got into the political party part of it instead and then and then got on and I was able to do issues there even. Yeah, I remember
0: uh, and I didn't write this down, so so forgive me if I'm getting some of the details incorrect, but I remember there was an uh, you you displayed an enterprising spirit. You pitched an idea, I forget who
1: it was in uh was it the Nixon administration? Uh, it was Raj Morton, yes. He was a congressman from Maryland, he was also the Republican national chairman. And I was in Washington at the time, uh working for Donald Rumsfeld at the Office of Economic Opportunity, and I had been thinking it was. You know, 1968, 1969 then, uh, when we were having the race riots in the cities and the uh, anti-Vietnam protests and Kent State had happened and we had a, a burgeoning senior citizen movement coming. And I was trying to figure out why weren't these people using the political process to get to their aims rather than being out on the street. And so I thought the best thing you could do is go out and talk to them, ask them. And so uh, it was a luncheon that my father came down to as Republican state chairman of New Jersey with the other state chairman and Morton was there. And again, with the brashness of a 21, 22 year old, I guess I was at that time, I just went up to him. He, dad introduced me to him and I said, I had this great idea that we ought to be out listening to groups of blacks, college students and senior citizens and finding out why is it that they're not using the political process? And he said, fine, you're hired. And I had a wonderful time. I was very lucky. I get to design my own prog program, travel around the country, listening to the disparate groups and very vastly different places and just listening. And then I came up with a a series of findings, as it were. Um, And really, a lot of it was just, hey, uh, these people, particularly the kids, because they were at that time, anybody that protested Vietnam was looked on as a traitor. And why were they protesting? And they were really protesting because the country wasn't living up to their ideals, the ideals that they thought it should stand for. It wasn't that they hated the United States, which a lot of people said, you know, get out of the country, you really hate it. It was because they were mad that that country wasn't living up to its ideals. And the same thing for the Black communities with which I met. Uh, They were feeling left behind. So I found a lot of common ground with Republican principles in those groups. And I pitched it that we really ought to be reaching out to them. If you want them to be part of what you're doing, then you have to make them welcome.
0: That's, uh, it's so interesting because at, at such a, an early stage of your career in politics and, and governing, that must have been very formative. I'm curious how listening and talking to people, getting to know folks one-on-one, in person, uh, face-to-face, how that might have continued to inform the policies that you would advocate later later on in your career as governor, even as, as administrator of the EPA?
1: Well, you saw the different needs that people had, the different ways they had of of analyzing problems. And you certainly learned at an early age that uh, people can want the same ends. You know, we all want to have a healthy life. We all want to have, be able to support ourselves. We all want to be able to have our kids have a better life. We just have different ways of going about achieving those things. And if you'd listen to people and then work with them, you could probably find out ways to achieve those ends in which we'd all agree. Um, We're not going to agree on everything, but we can find those places where we do agree and start to move forward.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because I certainly want to ask you a lot about your objection to former President Donald Trump. But when I've heard you talk about it, there's this separation between Trump himself and folks who've come to support Trump. Mm -hmm. And it sounds to me, And correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds to me like those formative years and and what you've continued to do throughout your career in actually talking to people and listening to people has given you an understanding of why someone would be drawn uh, to a figure like Donald
1: Trump. Yeah, no, that's true. I can understand why people were frustrated that Congress was being so, well, so inactive as it were, even though they were passing lots of little bills, they weren't addressing the big issues that uh, the people were concerned about. Taxes, inflation at that point, jobs, the economy wasn't doing that well. They didn't think Congress was listening. And that was their big gripe. And I could understand how they would get to that point of saying, listen, I want anybody who's going to just throw these guys out. Just tell me somebody who's going to make decisions and be hard and, and fast on it, Um my objection to donald trump was i had known him and worked of him well worked with him sort of uh when he was had to work with him when he was at atlantic city and what i saw there was not a man with the morals or scruples that i would want in the presidency because one of the things he was noted for and you could see it again and again was f- refusing to pay his full bills and when he was finished for instance with the casino his big casino in atlantic city he'd never do it directly he'd get his People to do it for him. But they called in all the little guys, the plumbers and the electricians, whom they had pressed really hard to get things done fast, move things along. And then they just blatantly told them, we're going to pay you pennies on the dollar and you can sue us. You'll probably win, but you'll be totally bankrupt by the time you do. That just is not the character of a person I think should be leading the United States of America. So, you know, I could separate out that from the people who were supporting him because uh, they just didn't know him in the same way. Uh, I was upset by what they were willing to disregard when they were told things. And it's like what you see now with people who are still fighting the 2020 election when it is very clear we should be celebrating it. I mean, in the midst of a pandemic with an administration that had been saying, well, Donald Trump had been saying it for years since 2016 and before that you know, elections We couldn't trust the system. And certainly from 2016, going into it, he said the only way he'd lose was if he if it was stolen. And now people are even though we've had 60 plus 70 cases, depending on how you look at them, that challenging the election results in various states, all of them have been thrown out, save one which had nothing to do with corruption. It had to do with a minor infraction and it wouldn't have changed the outcome of the elections. There was no there there. And yet we still have people in elective office and running for office now who are spouting this, and Donald Trump is still pushing it. And it's a concerted effort, I believe, to undermine the public's confidence in, the, in our electoral process, and that will allow them to get the legislatures around the country, and particularly in red states, to change the rules of the election process so they can change the referees, the people who are overseeing the electoral process. And then change the outcomes. And that's just not our democracy.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm going to take the interviewer hat off for a second and put my Jersey boy hat on and just underscore something that you said. I went to high school with uh, folks who were really excited in the late 80s, early 90s about getting their first big contracts. You know, these are fellows who are contractors laying cement or plumbing contractors. Uh, that were getting their first big contracts.
1: Hey, Corey, I'm working
0: on the Taj, big contract. But I know fellows who got those contracts and then all, subsequently lost their businesses, uh, lost their, their homes, lost their marriages because they did these big contracts, they met their payroll, they sacrificed, they did great work only to be get you know, either not paid at all or paid 30 cents on the dollar only after fighting for it for months and months, if not years afterwards. So I'm glad that you, uh, you you know, that that was pretty close to the time that you were um, you were governor of of New Jersey. So you would certainly know even better than
1: I would. Well, it's for the people who can't fight back. That's a classic of a bully. And it's the very people that the thing that really surprised me about it is his winning is it was the very people to whom he appealed. And they thought he cares about me. He didn't. He never did. I mean, look at what he did when it push came to shove and he had to pay his bills. He, he didn't care about the little guy. He took advantage where he could and he and he sounds good. And he was talking about issues. I have a lot of friends or I know many people who are still Trump believers. And yes, some of his policies absolutely address the issues of importance. China, for instance, I would argue that it should have been a, a when you put on restrictions on anything, it should have been he should have gone after intellectual property because that's where we were really. Having a problem rather than putting on, um, you know, tariffs on foodstuffs and things, which really hurt our American farmers, and then we had to take money out of other programs of the federal government to make them whole. Um, you know, he did take on some of the issues that needed addressing, but he did it in such a backwards way that it ended up, I think, doing more harm than good, and often. <laughs>
0: I just wanted to take a quick second to tell you about another show I think you'd really like 70 Million, an investigative documentary podcast from LWC Studios. Did you know 70 million American adults have a criminal record? 70 million. I didn't know that. I also didn't know about something called offender funded justice which is basically when legal systems are paid for largely by exorbitant fines levied against people who are arrested even before they're tried. These and other fascinating and revealing facts about our country's intertwined legal systems provide greater knowledge and understanding thanks to 70 million deeply reported episodes. Over the first three seasons, the Peabody nominated narrative series has chronicled how remarkable people around the US have transformed legal systems and entire communities in the process. 70 Million's fourth season, the latest from the series, delves into how police, jails, and prisons become the catch-all for unattended social ills and forgotten populations. It takes on the big questions we must answer as a society about who we are and who we pretend to be when it comes to achieving liberty and justice for all. Seasons one through four are available now. Take a listen and subscribe or follow wherever you listen to podcasts. For more, visit 70millionpod.com. So it's seven zero using the actual numbers, but the word million spelled out 70millionpod.com. Me, me me, you? You get me, get me. I did want to ask you about your political career uh, in, in New Jersey. And I, I was just looking at your numbers and I re, I remembered this back then because I was still in New Jersey when you ran against Senator Bill Bradley. And then mm-hmm. uh, I was still in New Jersey and voted for you for your first term as governor. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Uh, it was all it was all because of actually those races were pretty close. So it might have been because of me. Oh,
1: very, very close. Actually, it was Howard Stern in that first race.
0: Oh wow. How about that? So I was curious about that though. You know, you came very, very close to unseating Senator Bill Bradley in that first election. Why do you think you had so much success against someone who was a very, very popular senator?
1: Because he'd lost touch with the state of New Jersey. He'd gotten too involved with the Washington insiders. And he, I think, had been too uh, too convinced that he was going to be the next Democrat presidential nominee. He had won his first reelection by uh, over 16 percentage points. So I don't think he had figured he had to do anything. And of course, it was at a time in New Jersey, as you'll remember when Governor Floyo had raised taxes on everything, including toilet paper. And actually Bill Bradley and I were not that far apart on issues in general. I mean, he's a very smart guy and, and he was very popular as a you know New Jersey Nick and, and a Princeton Rhodes scholar. But he just never would address that issue. And I kept hammering him on the taxes in New Jersey, which was I mean, he was absolutely right. Senators have nothing to do with local taxes, with state taxes. And every morning I'd wake up and say, when is he going to get up and say, I hate taxes as much as the next person? Couldn't quite say that because of his tax reform bill. But. um, you know, I, I, I have to, I can't double, I can't second guess the governor. I don't know the budget the way he does. And I have to respect what he has to do. I would have had very few issues then. But he never did that. He never felt he had to. And that was his big mistake. And then at the very end, he had $12 million, I had less than a million. But at the very end, he ran an ad that had him sitting behind his desk in Washington, talking about some, I don't remember what it was, major issue, esoteric issue in Washington, and then kicking back at the very end, putting his feet up on the desk, and he had his basketball sneakers on. And it was sort of as if he was saying, you know, I don't care about your issues in New Jersey. They don't really matter. This is what's important to me. And and I, that was, I believe, why many of the Democrat voters did not come out uh, to vote for him. They just were mad
0: right right now your next election was uh, you were successful in unseating the sitting governor governor florio mm-hmm. uh side note by the way i i was interested to see that uh, later on you and governor florio had opportunities to work together to collaborate uh, yeah. on certain issues co-wrote articles on important issues together but so you you what do you think it was that finally put you over the
1: top so that
0: you won that election? I think it was by like one point, wasn't it?
1: One point. You know, I think it was finally getting the people to believe that I meant it when I said I was going to reduce the income tax by 30 percent in three years. It was a combination of he was very unpopular at the time because of all the taxes that he'd raised. I think about 16 taxes that he'd increased. The fact that I was talking about reducing the size of government in order to control spending or least talking about controlling spending. I didn't get all of the public employees mad at me then. Next next election they were. <laughs> but I I actually won the county where the most of them live in Mercer County the first time around, not the second. But um, I, it was a combination of factors. That, and there were, I had a really wonderful group of women supporters who were excited by the opportunity of having the first woman governor. And, um, you know, things just, Worked out. I worked hard at it. I had built up a lot of um, support in the interim years between running for gov- for Senate in 1990 and running for governor in '93. So I'd been around the state a lot and spent a lot of time raising money for local candidates and helping them with issue development. And so got to know people in different parts of the state, up and down the whole the whole state, which, as you know, can be very divided. The South is perpetually wanting to uh, disband and become a separate state, uh, but it was. Uh, I think it was a combination of those things. And then my daughter did a great ad at the end of the day because uh, she did a radio ad. And it it was a tough campaign. Florio's campaign manager were Paul Begala and um, James Carville. And they had just won with Bill Clinton. And I saw Paul Begala afterwards uh, a couple of years later. And he said, you know, we didn't know how you were going to how you survived that because we didn't want people not to vote for you. We wanted them to actively dislike you. Oh. And they threw everything they had at me. And, and Kate's um Kate's radio ad, which she rewrote. They sent her something and she threw it out and, and wrote her own, basically said, that's not who my mother is. But she ends with, I know she's not these things because she's my mom.
0: That's neat. Now now your your time as governor was really interesting to me. I just personally, some some of the most compelling leaders are. Often Republican or conservative uh, uh, politicians or, or leaders that are able to operate effectively and get work done in more blue leaning states. Like today, we have, say, Charlie Baker in Massachusetts or Larry Hogan mm-hmm. in Maryland. You were certainly one of those governors. Uh, in your two terms as governor of New Jersey, uh, you had quite a record of bipartisan accomplishments. Uh, there was one, though, that it was sort of a, a precursor to what's happening now. Uh, there was an in instance uh, with regard to abortion. In your book, you said, uh, you came to the conclusion that sadly, as you put it, they were more interested in having an issue than in saving the lives of unborn children. So I was curious, though, that that you could consider a loss, but it, you were fighting the good fight and you you came just within inches of of finding, again, bipartisan collaboration. But what what did it take to achieve compromise when you were able to on any number of issues? And is that that kind of collaboration possible in the politics of today?
1: Well, it's always possible. I mean, it's up to the individuals to understand, first of all, that people may be coming from diametrically opposed positions, but they have a reason for why they think that way. And you need to listen to it. And appreciate it doesn't make them bad it just means they have a different position and if you listen to why they feel the way they do you're often able to find those common points where you say, yes i agree with that I, I believe in this and start to uh, start to make some progress and the other thing is that i was never i can remember there were a couple of pieces of legislation that uh we'd sent over to the to the assembly and the senate and They'd do what they were supposed to do, which is work on them. And they changed them, but they passed them. But they weren't exactly the way I'd sent them over. And I can remember the press asking me, well, aren't you upset? Because this isn't the way you wrote the bill. And I said, no, uh, we now have, for instance, juvenile justice reform. We now have juvenile justice reform we didn't have before. Does it go as far as I want it? No, but it's progress. And I'm not going to let the perfect stand in the way of, of the progress. I think it's important to lay down those markers and start to build on them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Now, later, I I do have a bone to pick with you. So (laughs) I'd be irresponsible if I didn't ask a question. There was suspicion at one point in your political career of some impropriety. Rumor has it that you tried to bribe George W. Bush with a puppy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, didn't try to bribe him. He was uh, it was right at the end of the campaign. And for some reason, Lord only knows why I was able to persuade him to come into the state. You know, I see the momentum. We can win this. Of course, he lost it by 16 points. But anyway, Um, and you do the the traditional, you know, you get on the plane in Philadelphia to get off it at Newark to just look like you're traveling with the president, um, which I did. And he said it was Laura's birthday and he had gotten her some piece of jewelry. But her chief of staff had said she's never going to wear that. She's not going to like that. So he had no presents and I said, oh, well, we have just had a litter of Scotty puppies. How about giving her a puppy? He said, great. And I don't think he thought any more about it. Well, he obviously did, because after he won, they had this, I guess he told her she was getting this puppy. They had this long discussion, apparently, about what do they do? Do they take it to the White House? Who'd take care of it? What's going to happen and everything? And they ultimately decided to take it, take Barney. So uh, and the president eventually, um, he, decided, once he once he was president, he said, I can't accept a gift. So he paid me. For Barney, <laughs> who was fine because we named all our dogs after one, but his daughters named him Barney. <laughs> Terrific.
0: Terrific. Yeah. So obviously I, I was I was kidding about that. He it was funny how you told the story because he he was concerned that it might look uh, suspicious. And, you know, right. he insisted on paying you for Barney. Everybody loves Barney. So
1: I <laughs> yeah. so, figure his Barney cam was the most popular thing going during the Bush years.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Now you were able to accomplish a great deal as uh, the head of the EPA. That must have been uh, such. You're, you know what I was thinking of the most. You, you obviously accomplished a great deal, and it's there are issues that you're still involved with very actively to this day. But I couldn't help but think if your parents were still alive, would, they must they would have been so proud to see you as a cabinet member. Uh, it just that that's what kept running through my mind. It, did that ever cross your mind?
1: Not really. Not really. I mean, I just hope they were proud of what I was doing. Yeah. Um, titles, you know, titles and offices weren't the things that drove them. It was the policy, what was going to what was going to make a difference, what they could accomplish. They really uh, they weren't so hung up on although though I'm sure they they would have It would have tickled them to see that they had a, a kid that was in the president's cabinet.
0: Yeah, I guess that's my Jewish heart. The naches that a parent <laughs> feels, you know. Uh, I, and maybe the, the more gray I get, the more sentimental I get about that kind of thing. But, but like I said, you, you are still very, very involved in issues to help the environment. Uh, I saw one article that, um, that came out in the Philadelphia Inquirer in um, early 2021. You said, action on climate change can't happen in isolation. To be successful, it must be a coordinated effort by the entire administration. Biden's first executive orders are only the beginning of the actions his administration will need to take, but the technologies and opportunities are there for us to build on as a country. So first, we're almost a year and a half into the Biden administration. I'd love for you to give us your assessment of how you think they're doing so far.
1: Well, they haven't been able to achieve as much as I would have hoped. Um, Obviously, they're knocked off course by a whole bunch of things uh, between the coronavirus and the economy and the war and things that were beyond their control and things within their control. It's been an up and down year, shall we say. The big thing and the most important thing to me or the first really important move was to put in a... I don't like the term czar, but someone who was overseeing in the White House, overseeing addressing climate change with the focus on ensuring that every department and agency knew they had a role to play in dealing with it. Didn't matter whether you were in housing or education uh, or health care. There are things you could do within that portfolio to help reduce carbon emissions and greenhouse gas emissions and that's really important because for a long time everything was siloed and people thought okay environment that's just epa or maybe NOAA, you know and then department of interior and we leave it to them no it's it's everybody and it's up and down the food chain starting with your house your own home building up to your municipality and the county and the state they're all things that we can and really should be doing in order to address this, what is a critical issue. It is a national security issue. It's not something to be taken lightly. And it's always ironic to me that it was Ronald Reagan who first put climate change on the agenda of the National Security Council. He wasn't a big believer that humans had much to do with it, but he could see that there was something happening and we needed to be aware of it. So, um, you know, those kinds of things continue to be of great importance. The administration is doing, EPA is quietly trying to undo some of the damage that was done in the previous administration as far as rolling back various protections on the environment in water and air. But again, climate change has become such a political issue that it's really going to be solved, I think, in the states and the localities. When you have Reggie, which of which we are a part now, New Jersey, back in to that, which is the Northeast regional governors agreeing on how to go a path forward to try to reduce carbon emissions. The Western governors have the same thing. And eventually we'll either have a cap and trade program or a carbon tax, uh, something that will help uh, set a price on carbon so we can start to really assess it. And because it costs us billions of dollars every time we have one of these major storms, Uh, wildfires, floods, from hurricanes droughts those kinds of things are costing us real money every day so it's not something that's out there existential nowhere we don't have to worry about it we see it every day with these major storms that you know the 100 year flood that comes every other year that kind of thing so it is a critical issue i wish we were able to do more but congress is not able to do get together on much of anything And so the administration has limited powers of what they can do through executive order and regulation. And the problem with executive orders and regulation is they always get go to court right away and they can executive orders can be undone by the next administration. If Congress does those things, then they're law and it's a lot harder to undo. But Congress is reluctant to get out of its own way on this issue, particularly
0: from what I've read of of articles that you've put out, it strikes me that you've thought about this on the micro level and the macro level, the local, as well as the world worldwide level. Uh, One piece that you put out just earlier this year, you co-wrote with Leon Panetta about ocean-based climate action. I was hoping that you could tell us a little bit about what is ocean-based climate action, but also what, it. see, some of the some of what you were advocating for in that piece seems so doable. So I was curious what the resistance to implementing some of the changes, uh, such as reducing the emission emissions from maritime shipping.
1: Well, I mean, it's going to cost money and uh, people don't want to spend money. That, That the maritime industry, the shipbuilders and things, I mean, the shipbuilders are willing to do it. We have the technology, they can do it. It'll add something to the price, but not irrevocably. And it's, that considering the impact it would have on overall emissions, it's critically important. We can do these things, and what we have to understand is this whole approach. First of all, we have to get out of the mindset that we've had for so long that it's a e or you either have a thriving, healthy economy or you have a clean and green environment, and that's just not true. And we've proven it over and over again. Have all the statistics about how the economy grows and thrives when you are focusing on cleaning up the environment, the impact that it has. Certainly we saw it here in New Jersey, on the Jersey shore when we cleaned up the oceans and were able to resuscitate a bunch of shellfish beds uh, here in the state while I was governor. Um, you know, those things have real world impact. and But it's more that, you know, the camel's nose under the tent flap, if you let them in here just for a little bit, they're gonna take off and you're not gonna be able to get anything back. Uh, and that's not true. That's not what our history shows that we have done. Uh, and it also is, it flies in the face of this idea that you can't have a growing economy. And what we should be doing is figuring out, we're going to transition out of, of fossil fuels. We are. I mean, even the major utilities, is isn't a major utility that doesn't have some renewable, some money some for renewables in their portfolio and aren't doing more and more with wind or tidal or sun with and the solar panels uh, they all have them they can do this they know it but what we have to recognize that if we do that joe manchin's a perfect example he's going to be against it because his his state their economy is based on mining coal and you're not going to take a 45 50 year old coal miner whose entire history and family history has been in uh, mining and turn them into a high-tech. IT person, but what they can do is they can build anything. I mean, we're nobody's better than this country at at being able to be innovative and to and to build things. And so, uh, what we need to do is okay. This is where government steps in. And on the one hand, you can start to make it more expensive to or in more regulations on mining coal for everybody's good. And on the other hand, you you put in incentives to bring manufacturing businesses to those areas that are going to be losing the jobs the most. Again, it's something we've done before. We transitioned from an agricultural to a manufacturing society, then manufacturing to technology society. Uh, now we need to get a little bit of that manufacturing back again.
0: For sure, yeah. I your your policies are the policies that you advocate for are not only doable, uh, they're, they also strike me as practical uh, and the transition seems like a sacrifice but it also opens up all kinds of opportunities on the individual level who can transfer their skills uh, to you know the the bigger level of just uh, overall job creation. i did want to talk about some of the other uh, very pressing issues uh but these some of these issues it they're not things that you just started talking about over the last year or so uh your book it's my party two is from 2005 all right. Yeah, it makes a strong case to resist uh, what you refer to as the extreme elements that were asserting influence on the party, on the Republican Party. At one point, you sum up the imperative by saying, quote, if moderates don't rally around the core principles that have long defined Republicanism, the extreme right will run away with the party. Again, this is 2005. Uh, Mm -hmm. Preventing that troubling fate will take the emergence of radical moderates. So you were clearly concerned about this back then, but did you ever imagine what began to take over the party about 10 years after you wrote those words?
1: I didn't think it was going to be this bad or happen this fast. Uh, And the problem is you see the same thing happening on the left with the Democrats, with the far left pushing them to places that just are not reflective of where the American people are. And so, you know, up until recent cycles, and I mean, the last couple, the average voter turnout in primaries has been 10%. That means those are the most partisan people who tend to be more on the extreme, making the choices for you for November. And then when people got to the congressional, when Congress was top of the ticket, 34% turnout. Presidential, we think we've done a bang up job when it is over 55. Those are pathetic numbers. A democracy or a democratic republic that we have doesn't ask a lot of you, but it does ask you to be informed and to vote. And we've just gotten lazy. and We also don't teach civics anymore in the schools the way we need to. So it's it, we've allowed this to happen to ourselves. And I, I'm surprised at how deep it has gotten this fast, because I know a lot of people who are still struggling with Is it true about the 2020 elections? Are some of these stories that I'm hearing accurate? Then they're not sure. And yet there are others who absolutely don't want to hear anything to the contrary. And you kind of have to say, okay, we're just never gonna be able to to handle this part the, the way out when you're way out on this extreme right or left. But there are enough of those in the middle that we should be going for. But I would argue with you, there is no Republican party today there's a cult that calls itself Republican because they didn't adopt a platform in the last at the last convention, which means there's no core of what core set of values that we supposedly stand for. It's whatever Donald Trump says we stand for in any particular day. And so that's not a party, that's a cult. And this country I believe does best when it has two major parties, a, a center left and a center right. And right now, um, it's the first time in our history that better than that 50% of them registered voters are registered independent. I mean, it may take an independent party, uh, a new party, a third party to come along and and just jolt the uh, two that are in control out of their legacy and tell them they don't have a lock on this because there are so many disgruntled people.
0: That's interesting. I have heard you in interviews uh, as recently as at least late 2021, if not earlier this year, and you have eschewed a little bit the possibility of starting a third party. Uh, the way you've said it, and again, I'm just remembering off the top of my head, right. is it's it's basically it's a long shot.
1: And it is a long shot. It, it still is today. But if we don't, if things continue to slide away from us the way they are, We have a lot of people running for office at all different levels who are deniers, who are those who still say the 2020 election was stolen, who believe that January was six with just another day at the Capitol. And and those are people who don't believe in our political system. And the concern is you really want them in a position of making decisions about our elections and how they are going to be uh, overseen. If that's what you want, if you're comfortable with it, okay. But because we at States United, and I'm kind of speaking for States United, don't, and myself, we don't take positions on candidates per se, but we do put the information out there so people can look and see. And it's right down to the municipal level. And what we've seen in many states is once the deniers have control of legislatures. They're passing legislation that takes away the oversight of elections and the administration of elections from the people who are trained to do that, from the secretaries of state, from those in ELEC and the election law enforcement commissions, and handing it to the partisan legislatures, and basically setting it up so that they can say, oh, we think there was something wrong over here in this election. Therefore, we are going to nullify the votes and we're going to tell you who won. That's not democracy. That's not the way our country runs. But it's very real, and it is happening today. And there are over 300 pieces of legislation now that would do that kind of thing—take away oversight of the elections. And then there are all these other bills that are pending that you know are to fix the problem. There is no problem. We the 2020 elections were safe, secure, and accurate, proven again and again. There were no Chinese who were overseeing the election and shifting the ballots, Who, which is the irony there is somehow they were really, really smart, and they only changed it at the presidential level. Because if you look at some of these, this is happening, down ballot, Republicans all won. But somehow they were able to do it just for the president. It, it, it boggles the mind, and I am still trying to figure out, OK, how do we really deal with this uh, because, you know, you had what, 70 million people who voted for the president? You still have a vast majority of those who identify as as Republicans saying that the election was stolen. Joe Biden is not the real president. And that's a a real barrier to putting up some of these guardrails that we need uh, to keep our democracy. We're we're right at the cusp, I think, of of losing what we hold most precious. And when you See the Ukrainians fighting and dying for the very things that we are now walking away from? It's it's a tragedy.
0: Here's what I fail to understand is if you listen to someone like Adam Kinzinger, uh, representative, uh, cur- currently a congressman uh, who is a, a Republican uh, and on the commission that's investigating January 6th, along with Liz Cheney and um, and other Democrats. But he has said multiple times that there are any number of his colleagues from the Republican caucus who quietly come to him and say, thank you for doing what you're doing. I can't do it, but I'm glad you are. I don't I have a representative here. We're California's 25, but we will be California 27 in the 2022 election. Um, And he voted that night to overturn Pennsylvania's election, the next day, uh, January 7th, to uh, overturn Arizona's election. Mm -hmm. And he's continued to say things basically to appease the radical part of his base, his Republican base. I don't understand that thing. Is there such a pressure cooker between uh, a media environment and a political environment, uh, starting at the top with Donald Trump? I just don't understand how, there aren't more Adam Kinzinger's and Liz Cheney's. Can you help me understand that?
1: Well, it's disappointing because what it is, it reflects the fact that they'd rather hold on to their jobs than their principles. And uh, the radical or the far right votes. Moderates in the center, we get complacent. We don't always do what we should do, which is get out and vote. And so they know, that particularly for Congress with the redistricting, their districts are red or blue. There are, I forget how many, but it's a pitiful number of congressional districts across the country that are actually competitive. Um, And so what they do is only appeal to that extreme. And they are so afraid that if they stand up that they'll lose their job. And the last thing in the world they can think of is losing their job. And there are a couple of things we can do to fix that. But I've always said that my belief has always been: if you tell the public who you are, how you're going to approach the issues, and be honest, say, "Look, you're not going to agree with me on everything, but at least you'll know how why I'm doing it, and you'll know how I'm coming to this particular position." And I think you get more votes. You may not win by what you won with by before, but you can win under those circumstances. Um, I know I've done it a couple of times. Um, you know, it, it holding on to those principles is more important. Of course, I happen to believe term limits would be a very good thing in the Congress. Uh, legislative branches everywhere. But you know, if we had open primaries, for instance, um, that is a way to ensure that the candidates have to speak to everybody. If you have ranked choice voting, again, they have to speak to everybody under those circumstances. Those are some of the changes that we could make in the states um, as, of course, along with trying to ensure that we have a process that doesn't allow for the really terrible gerrymandering you see that goes on across the country. But um, it'll be easier, I think, to pass some of those other laws. And we've had them in certain states and they're working just fine. Washington State, Maine, they both have ranked choice voting and uh, they're happy with it.
0: I'm curious how that would come. I'd love to get somebody like Sarah Isger in here. I know this is a passion of hers. Uh, to get more ranked choice voting or open primaries. Is that something that States United Democracy Center is going to be working on after this election cycle? Or are you already working on it?
1: Um, Well, who knows? I mean, right now we are very involved with trying to protect the democracy we have through things like holding accountable those who were part of the riots. Um, We were the one I think among the initial ones who went to the California bar and said that they really needed to do something about John Eastman, we wrote a lot of the uh, case that was brought against the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers in Washington, D.C. We were amicus on that. We've been amicus on a number of cases. We're working hard to work with and support election officials who are trying to protect the vote and trying to ensure that every legal voter gets to vote and their vote gets counted, um, trying to push back against some of these laws that are being passed that, that make it more difficult. So that's where our focus has really been. I think if you inter, if you actually did a, a poll of people at, right, at States United, you'd find they were supportive of both of those things, but that hasn't been a big push right now. Right now, one of the things we are doing is we are publishing the list across the country of deniers running for office. And not saying... Don't vote for them, but just saying, understand, these are people who don't believe in the process we have now. They're not comfortable with it. And again, as I said earlier, if you want to vote for that person, OK, but understand what you're voting for. And uh, that's where we really are, have our focus at the moment.
0: Yeah. I, now, I, I love how the States United Democracy Center describes itself. We are more than a think tank. We are an action tank. Right. That's great. <laughs> But so as an independent, whose favorite caucus in Congress is the problem solvers caucus, one of the most heartening set of events I've seen in American politics, and at least the last decade, if not more, was the series of talks lifelong Republican leaders like like you, the uh, late Col- General Colin Powell, John Kasich, and Meg Whitman gave at the twenty twenty DNC. But I, I was I was curious if you can give us a little bit of background about what went into that. Why did you ultimately endorse now President Biden? But also, what kind of price did you have to pay for taking such a stand?
1: Well, again, I was one of the fortunate ones. I wasn't in office and I wouldn't have cared really anyway. I was so concerned of the damage I saw Donald Trump doing to our democracy, his disregard for the rule of law, his feeling that the Constitution was just an inconvenient document that they could do anything, breaking through the guardrails that we've had on what we always assumed was uh, normal behavior. Uh, such as interfering with cases in the Justice Department, that there should be and there always has been a separation. You don't have your sons and daughters making money off of you being in the White House, that that's something that that we used to have policies on. I mean, we didn't have to have hard policies. It was just understood. This is the way things work. Um, I co-chaired with uh, Pete Broad, a task force for the Brennan Center on uh, the rule of law and democracy. And we made numerous suggestions about how to just put those guardrails in place, things that we used to take as as regular behavior. But we dealt with that after John Kennedy appointed Bobby Kennedy. We've done this kind of thing before. Uh, Term limits. We did that after, it was always assumed after George Washington, that two terms was it until Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And so we had a constitutional amendment. We've done this before. And um, I was just very, very concerned about what I saw and I wanted, and also what he was doing internationally. He was isolating us and, you know, to say that we weren't going to live up to our, our agreements in NATO that we weren't going to be there to defend others. He was right in saying that they, the other NATO countries should pony up more money to support NATO. OK, that's fine. But you don't say, well, I'm going to walk away from the whole thing. Um, our allies didn't know if we were allies anymore, if they could trust us. And it was one of those things that I thought he was so dangerous that um, even if Biden wasn't my absolute Ideal choice. I thought he was a good choice. He was a sane choice. He was an experienced choice. And I think he has been very stable throughout a very unstable. Not all the decisions have been good. Lord knows that getting out of Afghanistan was a disaster. But he's he's done other things that I think he's he's gotten some things through the the uh, infrastructure bill. Was tough to get through, but that was bipartisan. He got that through. He's he's held the NATO countries together over Ukraine in a way that Putin certainly never thought was going to happen. So there are pluses and minuses with everybody, with anybody in office. But um, I would never regret not supporting Donald Trump.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, that's fair Uh, to your point. It's it's a mixed record, but I know you don't have to question um, uh, President Biden's integrity the way right. that, you know, everything on a daily basis. It was amazing to me, the capacity that he had to uh, uh, former President Trump. Just like, h- how are you
1: able to get that many statements, let alone lies <laughs> in a single day? So as there were in the first few years, I mean, no, it's amazing to me uh how it just went, goes right over people's head. I don't know if you remember, but early on, he said something to the effect of don't believe what you see, believe what I tell you. And for anyone to accept that is just mind boggling to me. You know, really, you're going to accept if he looks out the window and says, it's raining when the sun is out, um, you're going to believe that. You're going to accept that because that's basically what he's asking for. That's the stuff of dictatorships. And then I look at some of the governors. I mean, I'm watching what's happening in Florida now with Ron DeSantis and to have withdrawn support money for a new complex, uh, one of the stadiums that was actually going to help. Uh, provide some uh, some fields and things for young people because the team had called into question or actually come out in support of some form of gun control. We have used to have freedom of speech in this country and to use government as a tool in that way is very dangerous. It's what Hugo Chavez did and does. It's what uh, Orban does. And, And to see also so many of our Republicans and this president loving dictators, it should scare everybody.
0: Yeah, governing by retaliation or governing uh, and own the libs governing philosophy isn't really a uh, governing philosophy at all. Uh, Now, I did have just a couple more questions, but I I do wanna underscore something that's uh, so central, so important. You co-wrote a piece with Miles Taylor in the New York Times in late 2021, Uh, You said in that piece, we cannot tolerate Republican leaders in 2022 or in the presidential election in 2024, refusing to accept the results of elections or undermining the certification of those results should they lose. To that end, concerned conservatives must join forces with Democrats on the most essential near-term imperative, blocking Republican leaders from regaining control of the House of Representatives. Now, you're collaborating with Miles Taylor, among others, uh, with the Renew Mm -hmm. America movement, so who are some of the candidates that you are supporting? Because it's not just Democrats that you're supporting. You're also supporting pro-democracy Republicans.
1: Right. Like, there's, you know, those who will, who have stood up, who have, have stood up for the, for the country. There's a whole list. We published a list of 10 Republicans and 10 Democrats at the very beginning of RAM that were um, people who supported democracy and should be, we felt, supported in this elect coming a cycle. You know, as we, we started as being just Republicans, about 150 former Republican elected officials who wanted to get the Republican Party back to the center. But we quickly figured out, no, that's not the answer. We need everybody back to the center. So we need to support both sides of the aisle. And we have those candidates there, uh, that list, and we're continuing to publish lists like that. And also of the ones that we think do not deserve to be in office. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene, she doesn't deserve to be in office. Uh, I loved, I don't know if you saw it today, where she was claiming that, um, I forget now who it was, who was trying to stop us from eating hamburgers.
0: It's um, Microsoft uh, founder, Bill Gates.
1: And, And that he was doing this all in a peach tree dish.
0: A peach tree dish.
1: If you look at if you look at the Twitter responses, it is hysterical because she also goes off and said, "Now the government's going to want to know how often you go to the bathroom, and you know, are your bowel movements? I mean, just way out crazy stuff." And yet she's in the United States Congress and just won her primary. Those are this is this is something we need to be concerned about. I mean, it's not just any old person who has crazy ideas. These are people who are making. The laws for us, and she has a lot of cohorts there in Congress, unfortunately, and we need to be aware of that. We need to decide: is this really the the rabbit hole we want to go down? Um, one of my favorite hats is I have a baseball cap that says "Make Orwell Fiction Again."
0: <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah, I'm going to have to have a whole other episode on the possibility of open primaries and ranked choice voting to see to what degree that can, number one, how realistic that is to get that on as ballot initiatives in in Mm -hmm. all the states, uh, but also how effective it would be at Mitigating the number of Marjorie Taylor Greens in Congress Mm -hmm. and just getting like, listen, I I, there's someone who's going to be running in our district who, when I look at the way that she would vote on specific legislation, we probably would disagree at least 75% of the time. But the fact that um, this candidate, she was an assemblywoman. Uh, prior to running for US Congress. But the fact that she would hear my voice, even as someone who voted against her when she ran for state assembly and has Mm -hmm. different political views, uh, she includes my voice and and would represent folks who disagree with her. And most importantly, she believes in democracy itself. So I do have um, one last question for you, and then a piece of business. Do you have any questions for me?
1: Well, I guess the thing I'd ask you is: first of all, I'd be—I'd love to know what's your reach, what's your audience, um, and how often do you do this?
0: Well, we're we're producing one episode a week. Sometimes we have a special episode or a two-part episode. Uh, like next week, we have the wonderful and the brilliant Jonathan Rouch, uh, who is just a, an incredible thinker. Uh, And we spent the first part of our conversation, he ended up asking me a lot of questions because he's such a genuinely inquisitive guy. But I wanted to ask him about the incredible book that he released last last year called The Constitution of Knowledge. And it addresses a lot of these epistemic problems Mm -hmm. uh, because I think a lot of times we have to get to the root cause. I was asking you why, I'm trying to understand why. And um, uh, John Roush really... Uh, examines that in an erudite uh, and and thorough way with the Constitution of knowledge. Uh, so we do this about once a week. Sometimes sometimes we release a special one uh, for twice a week. Our audience, I would say, is a diverse audience. Uh, the, the so we have some folks who are very very liberal who are AOC supporters, for example, mm-hmm. uh, that listen to us, and and that encourages me. When I get someone like you, or uh, there was a fellow who was a, a Republican who was running for Senate in Pennsylvania, he unfortunately uh, pulled out, but he, he's a real conservative. So for my mm-hmm. liberal friends to listen to someone like you or someone like uh, like that, it, it's informative and it's encouraging for them that there are principled folks who they have uh, philosophical disagreements. But we also get a lot of folks who are very center right, um, mm-hmm. who are true conservatives Um, The folks, the only folks that I think aren't listening to us are the Stop the Steal folks. Uh, You know, the the full MAGA crowd, I, I don't think I'm their cup of tea. How did you get
1: into this in the first place?
0: Oh, boy. So our show is talking politics and religion without killing each other. So I grew up in a very observant Jewish home and I became a we went to an Orthodox synagogue. But in my late 20s, I became a Christian. So there were two things that happened there. One is I had to talk to my family and, and my friends and the people I was going to synagogue with about why I became a Christian, very difficult conversations about religion and theology. Um, but over time, there, there were a lot many years of fraught, fraught conversations, but they were still conversations and we were more committed to our relationships as a family and friends than we were to proving each other, proving a point or winning an argument. But then as a Christian, I started going to a church uh, where, I wouldn't say it was a fundamentalist church, but a lot of people with fundamentalist views went to that church. And a lot of it was very much at odds with what I was reading in the Bible, with Mm -hmm. a theology, a Christian theology. Oftentimes it was an idolatry of sorts. And certainly it's just metastasized now in the age of Trump. And I had to have difficult conversations with my brothers and sisters from church Uh, My my friends, my people I was doing a Bible study with about, hey, do we really value what says what it says in the Bible or do we value the socio social or political position first and then try to back scripture into it? Mm -hmm. So that's those conversations, my friends from church about political thing, social and political things, um, religious conversations with my the people I grew up with. Um, I've been having these conversations my whole life avocationally. So a year and a half ago, right before the 2020 election, we decided to start recording some of these conversations and sharing it with, uh, with other people. So longer story than you asked for, but that's.
1: It's actually, it's quite interesting because I've just been asked by some members of our church and our minister, if I would do some conversations with her about how religion has shaped my outlook on, uh. And politics and government and to get people in to to talk about that. I mean, and I must say, I'm with you. Sometimes when I see these people with their hateful messages who wrap themselves in the Bible, I want to go, what Bible are you reading exactly? I mean, same to me from what I've read and my understanding of Christ is he welcomed the sinners. He opened his arms to them. Uh, he didn't read people out because they were gay or because they were different skin color. Uh, you know, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ, and uh, it's just interesting to me that the timing is interesting. I just got asked to to do this with her, with our minister, and uh, we'll be doing it.
0: Oh, that's terrific. That's that's really encouraging. Uh, I, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I appreciate that thought. If there's any way that I could be helpful, if you know, I'm I'm happy to do it. That's. <laughs>
1: I may call on you as the expert, but you know, one, one, just one statistic that might make you feel better about life is that better than 70% of the American people would rather ensure that every legitimate vote is recorded as counted than have um, their own candidate win. But on the flip side, another, and this just boggles my mind today, families would rather have they're more comfortable with their child marrying someone of a different religion than of a different political party.
0: I believe it. I believe it. It's tragic. That's that's at the heart of the work that we're trying to do here. We're trying to remember uh, how to rehumanize instead of dehumanize folks that we disagree with. There's that tendency to hear, you know, (laughs) Tim Keller talks about how you, you could go into any number of church groups or Bible studies and literally read the Sermon on the Mount word for word and then get kicked out for sounding like a a liberal socialist or something. But uh, before we go, how can folks find more information about you, the States United Democracy Center, the Whitman Strategy Group and all the great work that you're doing?
1: Well, dot statesuniteddemocracycenter.org and uh, whitmanstrategygroup.com.
0: Terrific. Yeah, so uh, really encouraging work, statesuniteddemocracy.org. And uh, Governor Whitman, I just I just really want to thank you. This was what a treat, what an absolute joy it was and edifying and encouraging. And I'm just really grateful to have been able to spend some one on one time with you. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for doing this.
1: Well, thank you. And thank you for what you're doing. I mean, these kinds of things are important. And, you know, sometimes we uh, dismiss the impact, uh, the cumulative impact of individual behavior, and the more you do these things the more that message gets through that that gets carried out into the community and so you're really making a difference thank you
0: oh i appreciate that i appreciate that and as always if you dig what we're doing here please hit that subscribe button leave a review and comments wherever you get your podcasts and tell a friend about talk politics and religion without killing each other you can find us at ta- politics and religion us support our program and uh now i just want you to go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect And have a great week. Thank you for joining us today. If you dig what we're doing here, it is super easy to follow us. You can go to our site, politicsandreligion.us. That's with the N spelled out, A-N-D. politicsandreligion.us. And we're on all the socials, at Pod. You know, Pod for talking politics and religion pod. And here's a big way you can support us, by becoming one of our patrons. You can even become a producer or executive producer of our program and have a lot more say in who we bring on, the kinds of questions we explore, or just help us keep the lights on. But mostly, we really appreciate you giving us a listen. So for the whole team here at Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other, thanks for hanging out with us. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.